Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 943. To begin today's show, David Lorla welcomes Chelsea Janes of the Washington Post. Chelsea was present at both of the wildcard games this week, so she has lots to share about the exciting atmospheres at each, even if she hasn't gotten much sleep. David and Chelsea also discussed things like how the Giants won 107 games, catchers like Buster Posey and Salvador Perez surging after a year off from playing, and what going from covering baseball to covering politics was like. Finally, Chelsea weighs in on the very tight NL MVP race. You know, I, I think Trey Turner, in my mind, is is the most valuable player. I remember sort of getting to L.A. after that deal, and Blake Trinan, who had played with him in, in D.C., was like, yeah, Max is great, but, like, I don't know another player that impacts the game on as many levels as Trey Turner. And I think people are starting to see that, and I think the numbers really bear it out. After that, Eric Longenhagen and Jason Martinez get together to catch up on things now that the baseball work schedule is so rapidly changing for both of them at the end of the season. Eric shares some of the talented minor league players he's been keeping an eye on, including 19-year-old Rangers prospect Bayron Laura. Meanwhile, Jason shares some of his personal fan feelings about the Padres' ill-fated second half, and the duo talk about where A.J. Preller and the org may be heading. Finally, Eric and Jason talk about some big 40-man roster crunches coming up this winter, including one team that will have to make a number of moves. So, like, in addition to the Rays, who had 50 guys on their 40-man when I wrote the the crunch piece because of injury, when you put a guy on the 60-day IL, he's not on your 40-man anymore. But when the offseason arrives, he's got to come off the 60-day and be part of your 40-man situation again. So Yeah, I think they're at 51 right now. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so... They're at 51 right now. They maybe have Maybe 52 because one of the guys, Adam Conley, still on the COVID IL. Yeah, so I think they have 52 on the, on the 40. But before we get to these segments, I must remind you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. There are a number of things to check out there, including an ad-free Fangraphs membership, which is your best way to both browse the website and help keep us doing all the things we do. We sincerely appreciate your support and couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Chelsea Janes, national baseball writer for the Washington Post. We are going to talk postseason, probably some regular season baseball as well. But first, we should talk sleep and travel schedules. Uh, Chelsea, you were at Fenway Park on Tuesday night. You were at Dodger Stadium Wednesday night for a game that lasted four plus hours. We're recording this on, on Thursday morning. How many hours have you actually slept since I saw you at Fenway? I think I got a good six hours last night after the the NL game, so I'm I'm good to go. The after the 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 AL game before the early flight was pretty rough. I think that was about two hours and kind of an adventure yesterday, but I'm a little more coherent today, so the timing is good. <laughs> uh, you're probably at least as coherent as I am on normal days. So, so, <laughs> so there is that. Yeah. So you did not go directly from Fenway to the airport, or did you? I did not. I got to go back for a couple hours, which was good. <laughs> Super. Are you a coffee drinker? I'm not. I actually have a, a cup of tea with me. I, I can't do coffee. I get crazy. So it's safer to stick with tea, but I might need something stronger by the time these playoffs are over. I think you're probably going to need something. I know you're traveling to San Francisco shortly after we get done recording here. A shorter flight, of course. You know, games that end close to and often after midnight here on the West Coast can be hard to stay up for. You know, that said, both wildcard games that you covered, I think were probably worth worth it to anybody who did stay up. Yeah, I think that's right, especially last night. You know, the National League game was just so 
intense. You know, I think Max Scherzer said he was felt like he was on pins and needles the whole time. You know, it, it really felt like there was kind of this tightrope between like total demoralization for the Dodgers and, you know, them kind of marching on. So it was that was a really good game. And, and even the Red Sox Yankees game was like a tenser 6-2 game than it felt. And I mean, any anytime you're at Fenway, it, you know, that crowd kind of makes you feel like it's a 1-1 game the whole way. So for me, those were those were two great games. And, and for people who don't like to see the Yankees succeed, it was probably worth it to see them get knocked out. I think that a lot of our listeners are probably nodding uh, appreciably to that, that statement. <laughs> yeah, how, how Chelsea, you know, how do you compare the Fenway Park and Dodger Stadium experiences? You know, I'm thinking atmosphere more than anything. Yeah, you know, so I grew up in Massachusetts, very sort of immersed in the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry. So that's sort of all I know. And um, I had never actually been to sort of a big Yankees-Red Sox game until this week. And it is a very tense and sort of hyper environment. You know, I think the hype sort of creates itself. The fans are yelling at each other. It's it's a very specific kind of atmosphere, I think. You know, whether it's, you know, I could hear the fans kind of chanting Garrett, but like in the back of my mind, they were yelling. Roger, you know, from Roger Clemens back in the day. It's just sort of a continuation of the same game year on year. And and getting to LA yesterday, I was like, is this even a playoff game? You know, when I first arrived, everyone was, the stadium was really calm. You know, people weren't sort of clamoring to get in. It, it, you know, the fans weren't really yelling at each other. But by the end of the game, obviously, you know, that place was, was really rocking. But it's just a different a different vibe. I think those Red Sox-Yankees games just sort of have their own character and and everyone there knows all the stories and the history. And so it's it's just a little bit of a different feel. But, you know, Dodger Stadium was so loud by the end last night that, you know, I cannot imagine what it's going to be like if the Giants, when the Giants come or, you know, God forbid the Houston Astros make their way to the World Series and end up there. You know, it's it's going to be absolutely insane. Yeah, Dodger Stadium does have a reputation of fans arriving a little bit late, which given yeah. uh, the, the traffic, that's actually pretty understandable, and maybe leaving early. I wasn't really watching the crowd on TV last night. Was it late arrival, and did anybody seem to leave early? Definitely didn't seem like anyone left early. It, it did fill in as as the game got nearer. I think that is sort of one of the differences, for sure, you know, for better or worse, that I think that, you know, the, there was you know, rows deep of Yankees fans ready to yell uh, at the Red Sox and vice versa, you know, during batting practice at Fenway the other night. And and L.A. is like they kind of, you know, it was quiet until it was time to not be quiet. And maybe that changes in a rivalry game. I don't know. But it certainly was no quieter, if not louder, by the time things really got going. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, sort of later to sort of catch up with guys like Max Scherzer and Trey Turner and see, like, how does that compare to, you know, the World Series environment you played in? Because I would imagine that even with all they've experienced, that's probably one of the loudest crowds they've ever they've ever experienced. No, I was planning to ask you about that, Chelsea, because you were a Nationals beat writer. I don't know if you were technically on the beat in, in 2019, but you were at the series, which is actually fairly unique when the Nationals beat Houston, because I, I believe the road team won, won all seven games. Yeah. And that does affect the atmosphere, right? Fans... When you're losing, it gets pretty quiet. Yeah, I think that's right. That series was particularly strange. You know, I think I think at Nats Park, everyone was really happy to have it happen. You know, it was a a really good environment, but there were just sort of some weird weird happenings there. Like you said, you know, I remember one of the games. You know, President Trump was there, and that sort of became the focus of the crowd for innings on end. And 
And one of the games, you know, Max was scratched late and Joe Ross started and everyone was just kind of, I think that was the same game actually. And everyone was just kind of like, well, what do we do now? And, but you're right. I mean, I don't remember Houston being all that loud because if you remember, I think it was game one that, you know, Soto and Zimmerman had homered and, and, you know, the Nats had a lead pretty early and it's just, everyone was sort of on their heels the whole time. So it was definitely a really different feel. And I think, you know, I wonder how that changes if that World Series is played, you know, not maybe in Houston and D.C., but elsewhere. But, you know, that being said, you know, the Nats had to go through L.A. and St. Louis and sort of those crowds on their way there. So I'm sure they felt it. But it was a very strange atmosphere in those in those cities, probably because the home teams were losing the whole time. And we'll get back to the, the current postseason in a moment. But first, 2019 was the first ever World Series championship for, for the franchise. 17 years in D.C. and another, I know, three decades plus, I believe, in Montreal. Have Nets fans, like how have they reacted to the fact that they have had two very poor seasons since that title? You know, I think they were sort of willing to look at 20. 20- so there's, there's sort of two parts to this. I think that that title has probably bought them a decade or so of goodwill. You know, I, I really can't overstate how unexpected it was that year. You know, I think of all the Nats teams from, say, 2012 to 2020, you know, you might put the 2019 fifth or sixth on the list of teams that were best equipped to win a World Series. So I think just the nature of that run and the characters involved will sort of give them a pass for a while. That being said, I think there was a lot of disappointment, not necessarily over trading Max at the deadline, but over trading Trey Turner. I think everyone sort of saw that as a white flag on 2022 and felt that like this team didn't need to do that, didn't need to sort of tear it all the way down, had the money to spend if they needed it. So, you know, I think there's disappointment, but it, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting covering the Nationals is you sort of see the growth of a fan base with a team. And that World Series team, you know, was kind of the culmination of really a decade of core building. And, you know, now they get to see what happens when you have a core and it goes away. And that's something we've seen so many teams endure. And then you get the next round. And I think they're just kind of, they're waiting to kind of fall in love again. And I I don't think they're going to be particularly patient in doing so because, you know, frankly, you know, 17 years as a franchise waiting for your first title isn't all that long. And I think, you know, they were competitive by 2012. So the, the droughts have not been as long as they've felt in D.C., and I'll be eager to see kind of how, how that town handles it if if it does take a while to, to be competitive again. Right. You mentioned, you know, maybe buying a decade of goodwill, even if it is a bit shorter than that. It's very different here where I am in Boston because <laughs> yeah. the Red Sox won a series pretty recently, and their fan base, much of the fan base, I, I can't really blanket that, I guess, shouldn't blanket that, is chagrined that they did not win consistently in the second half. And I spoke to several people who said, hey, I don't care if we don't get into the playoffs because we're not going anywhere. Yeah. And that's, it's, an, it's an interesting fan di- dynamic. As you know, in New York, Yankee fans, whether they d- should be or not, are borderline angry based on what I see on social media. Yeah. Oh, it's so different. It's so different. And I, you know, I think I grew up thinking that the correct way to fan was the the Boston and New York way. And and seeing, especially the Yankees experience this year, I, I mean, you know, I can't say for sure, of course, but just from the outside looking in, I think, I think a lot of the, 
sort of frenetic nature of that fan base, which is obviously, you know, sort of one of the best you could ask for when things are going well, it, it just felt like there was a lot of pressure on those guys, that, that every little misstep felt like the end of the world. And I think you could see it and can see it in some of their young players. I mean, I, you know, Glaber Torres used to look like he was having a blast out there and all of a sudden it's like the weight of the world is on him. And, you know, I remember Gary Sanchez sort of pathetically saying, I wish they'd cheer for me more, you know, and it was just like, you know, obviously these guys are professionals and should tune it out, but it, you know, it it is a really different approach. You know, I think in some of these cities, you're not going to get booed quite as mercilessly. And I, you know, I know they should be able to shut it out, but I think you saw, especially in New York this year with the Mets and, and Lindor and and bias and all these things, like it matters. It makes a difference. And it is an added component and an added hurdle, I think, to play in those places where the, the expectations are so immediate that like a seven day slump has you being talked about on talk radio as as somebody that needs to sit. I think it's it's really hard on guys and, and probably, you know, in some ways, you know, counterproductive. You mentioned young players. Let's jump back uh, for a moment to, to the Nationals. Juan Soto, NL MVP this year? Oh, I don't know. I, you know, he certainly has a case, and it's it's fascinating that he and, and Bryce have that case, given sort of that the Nationals said, we'll take Soto and, and let Bryce go. You know, I just, I sort of can't get over the Nationals of it all in terms of, you know, Trey Turner also having that case, and um, Max Scherzer having a Cy Young case. It's just kind of unbelievable, the talent that's come through there, but... Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think he is probably, depending on how you think about these things, the best hitter in the National League. You know, the the way he walks, the way he sees the zone is is unbelievable. And uh, I don't know if he gets the MVP votes. I understand why it's sort of hard to to vote for a guy who was on a team that decided to sell and then kind of plummeted. But but man, he he certainly has a really formidable case and and has. He and Harper will have put together some of the best offensive seasons not to win it, I think, if they don't. You know, I, I think Trey Turner, in my mind, is is the most valuable player. I remember sort of getting to L.A. after that deal and Blake Trinan, who had played with him in, in D.C., was like, yeah, Max is great, but like, I don't know another player that impacts the game on as many levels as Trey Turner. And I think people are starting to see that, and I think the numbers really bear it out. No, Turner was actually my prediction for NL MVP oh, wow. this season. Not on Fangraphs. I I double dipped and went <laughs> and and went with Acuna for my my NL pick, uh, Otani in the AL. But I was on a podcast around that time, the end of March, and I did pick Turner. And when I look back at that, I recall thinking after the pod was recorded that you know maybe that's a bit of a stretch. I probably should have been more conservative. But in retrospect. I think Turner may have been the best player in, in the National League this year. I think he will be hurt by the fact that he played for two teams, the second of whom is laden with, with stars. I think that's right, you know, and I think the way, you know, I, I often kind of look at L.A. And, and think they swallow people up. You know, I, I sort of look at Mookie Betts and wonder, like, you know, maybe it's because I'm not in L.A. all the time, but, like, that is one of the most exciting players in baseball and sort of a once-in-a-generation talent. And it sort of feels like you don't really think about him anymore because he's in L.A. on this roster with a ton of stars. But it feels like Trey's sort of been able to kind of increase his profile since he's gotten there. And I think a lot of people that I talk to around the Nationals, you know, would hear people ask, you know, do you sign Soto long-term? Do you sign Trey long-term? And a lot of them thought Trey was the move there. Obviously, that didn't happen, but, you know, he... He's a really steady player. The speed is is a dimension you really can't just sort of unearth elsewhere. And he's also a really smart and even-keeled guy who, if the speed sort of 
wanes as he gets older is going to be able to figure out how to be, you know, still a really productive player. So, you know, I, I think he is, you know, potentially the MVP this year and, and probably will be able to make a really good case in years to come too. And, and playing for a marquee franchise does put a higher profile on a player like Trey Turner. On the other hand, he does play on the West Coast. So he gets a little less exposure as far as fans across the country getting to watch the games. That said, can you answer this question? How did the San Francisco Giants win 107 games this season? Whew, I don't know. You know, I I hate to say this, but like it's so stunning to me that you start to like wonder and be a little suspicious. You're like, what do they know that we don't? You know, what you know, whenever something doesn't add up in baseball, the first thing you sort of think of is like, is somebody doing something they're not supposed to be. And I don't think that's the case, but it's like that crazy that they're doing this. And for me, I've spent, you know, maybe seven, eight days around them. I'll spend more time this week. But what's really stuck out is is there is a there are a lot of coaches there. And in talking to players, it just seems like they are determined to sort of eliminate anything that is going to make those players' jobs harder. So whether that is, you know, the way they present information I was talking to Darren Ruff and he's like, everyone's always told me lay off sliders away. And I was like, sure, you know, I could do that. And and I've been trying, but it's never happened. And then they kind of found a different way to present it to him that, that was more effective. Whether it's just like letting guys take BP when they want, trusting them to sort of do their their thing. It just feels like whether it's Kapler, whether it's the front office, whether it's the coaches they have. They're just kind of willing to do what they feel fits the player instead of what they feel fits tradition. And I don't think they're like breaking the mold that much, but it just seems like they've gotten buy-in from a group of guys who already knew how to win. And and the roster construction has been good. And it's it's just really, really impressive. And I think, you know, we'll see kind of how it stands up to October. I feel like everyone is sort of like waiting for the end of this run, but maybe it doesn't come. Maybe this is sort of the new raise in a way. And, and people start to look at them and say, okay, how do we start trying to make our 31-year-old players better and, and not just our 23-year-old players? The new Rays. I think that you just gave uh, a lot of writers listening to this podcast a, a good story idea, if it's not already in their head, right? <laughs> I hope not. It's mine. I trademarked yes. it. <laughs> yeah, Brandon Crawford is getting a, a lot of uh, attention for possible MVP. People don't seem to be mentioning Buster Posey, who's having one of the best years of his career after sitting out last year. Yeah, I, I mean, it's unbelievable. I think... I think there is a question to be asked, especially when you look at like Salvador Perez and and Posey, if like maybe you like take a really good catcher and play him at first for a year, because whether it's Perez with the injury that kept him out or Posey, you know, sitting, it just feels like that break has really rejuvenated those guys. I mean, obviously, we know catcher is an exhausting position, but I think you watch those guys get to 30 and you're just like, yeah, they're going to decline. And maybe they don't have to. Maybe that's maybe there's a different way to manage workload on a sort of broader scale. And certainly you're not going to convince an elite major league catcher to sit out a season. But, you know, I think I think Kapler has certainly been very disciplined in how he's handled Posey, whether Posey likes it or not, and making sure that the rest is there, whether, you know, the circumstances call for it or not. And it seems to have worked. But I don't know if that's something you could duplicate elsewhere. But it's it's been interesting to me to watch those two guys in particular sort of just come back to life after a year spent not squatting every night. I think it, it probably makes a bigger difference than we realize. No, here in Boston, Christian Vasquez, I'm fairly certain, led uh, both leagues in, in catcher starts. 
you know, maybe catcher innings this year. He's certainly not an elite player, and he's not a first baseman by any means. But maybe he is more productive this year if he does not, you know, play what 130 plus games. It's a hard position in today's game with the, you know, the three and a half hour games, 200 pitches on some nights. There's no doubt, and and even just like the sheer number of pitchers that you're dealing with, I think makes a difference. You know, if you have a catcher that's sort of a dogged preparation guy, you're going to spend ton of time before every game sort of figuring out who might come in where and just kind of readying yourself for those matchups and yeah sure like a lot of that is stored in these guys brains in ways that I could never duplicate but it it really I do, I do think matters like I think I think we underestimate the toll that one full baseball season takes on a, a baseball player's body and I think catchers even more so if they can hit you know that just becomes secondary in the course of sort of managing a pitching staff and so it's pretty stunning to see what what's happened there. I mean, I, again, I don't think you're going to start seeing catchers sit out seasons, but you know, maybe good catchers have, especially if you get a universal DH, you know, maybe that becomes more normal that you you play ninety and and hit the others. Um, but it's it is pretty interesting just to watch what Posey's been able to do. Obviously, the talent was there, but you never expect a guy like that to to come back to to that form when he's in his mid thirties. Yes, and pitchers hitting in the the two National League you know playoff series. I think this will be the last time we see pitchers hitting in in the major leagues, right? I think it has to be. I, I mean, I don't see a world in which that doesn't happen. It just seems like everybody kind of wants it. The players in those negotiations want it. I mean, the only way that doesn't happen is that like somebody just gets stubborn for being stubborn's sake. But yeah, and it's it's funny, you know, to me personally, because having watched Max Scherzer for years, like that guy really likes to hit and he might, he didn't get a hit this year. So he might sort of never get a hit again after being convinced for years that he could be a 200 major league hitter. So it, it is interesting. I think there are going to be guys who miss it, but, you know, I think the whoever invests in, in Scherzer moving forward and, and all those other guys are going to be fairly happy that they don't have to go stand up there and dodge, you know, 99 to the face. And last night, Adam Wainwright somewhat curiously hit for himself and then was lifted early the next yeah. inning. I don't know if he necessarily want to get into the weeds of that, but I do know that Wainwright has 10 or 12 home runs in his career. So the chances of him going deep in that game were pretty slim, but it would have been a, a stroke of lightning, right? Yeah, there's no doubt. I was I was a little puzzled by that too, especially because he you know didn't didn't stay in very long. But I always sort of assume there's more at play there than I than I know. But yeah, that was that was weird. But again, like, who was it? Brandon Woodruff, who had that big home run that sort of is like his greatest, uh, you know, postseason achievement to date. It's it's just crazy. I mean, it does sort of take an element of randomness away from a sport that is always, in my mind, more fun when there's more of that. No, Mickey Lolich, the the longtime uh, left-hander in the big leagues, I think he pitched maybe 17 or 18 years. The only home run he hit in his career was in the 1968 World Series for the Tigers. So... <laughs> I didn't know that. That's insane. That's amazing. No, it, it is insane. And and we're running we're running out of time, Chelsea. But let me hit you with uh, with two more things. What would you consider the most compelling World Series matchup this year? I think for me it would be Astros Dodgers. Yeah, I don't know if I even have to explain that one. You know, I just think that I was at the games where the the Astros came to Dodger Stadium this year. It was uh, raucous to say the least. But I also think that like, I mean, I could be wrong three days from now, but the Astros have kind of seen some stuff, you know, like those guys are not going to be sort of blown away by anything that comes at them in any of these environments. And I think if you put them in a seven game series, riding emotion, they, they could, 
they could do some damage. So to me, that's sort of what I want to see just for the pure chaos and, you know, angst of it all. But that may be sort of a personal thing (laughs) rather than like what I think appeals to everyone else. Yeah, I'm sure you wouldn't mind coming back home to Massachusetts to cover the Red Sox in the World Series. No, I would I would happily do that. I uh, I would happily do that. I've been told that people outside of the East Coast don't really get the whole Red Sox Yankees thing as much. But having been been immersed in it my whole life, I would I would love to to see them, you know, make a run. Okay, one last thing, Chelsea. You mentioned earlier Donald Trump having been at a World Series game at Nats Park. You took a brief baseball hiatus to cover the 2020 presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. How did that com- experience compare to what you're doing now in terms of, well, like what we started with, sleep and travel schedule? Was it just as insane? It's so interesting because when I moved off baseball to do politics, one of the things that was sort of in, in everyone's mind is, you know, the, the Post kind of likes to rotate people off the, the Nats beat fairly frequently every five, six years just because of the grind of it all. And I, you know, had been convinced that nothing could be harder in terms of travel than baseball. And campaign, I think, was the one thing that was because you're you're not flying to, you know, Los Angeles and Boston. You're flying to Des Moines and driving three hours to a barn. You know, it's like you, you can't really prepare for that. So it was exhausting. Uh, it was a lot of strange travel routes and changes on short notice. You often got the schedule like the night before and would book flights accordingly. But yeah, it was it was really, really grueling, especially as you got closer, but sort of fascinating in, in a different way too, because you do end up seeing places you'd never see and encountering people you'd never encounter. So, but yeah, I think, I do think I am uniquely equipped to fly from Boston to LA and cover something overnight just because, you know, I spent a good part of 2019 and early 2020 you know, driving around Iowa at all hours, you know, and and covering events until nobody could stand anymore. Right. So the roughly eight hours of sleep that you've gotten in the last maybe 48 to 64 hours is is something that you can handle. You know, we'll see. I I don't know if people reading my my tweets would think that. I think there's certainly a little bit of insanity that sets in, but I'm hoping that that is the case. Yes. Chelsea, a little bit of insanity, I think, adds to to any baseball article. So (laughs) on, on that note, I know that you need to pack up and head to the airport. So I would like to thank you for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Hello, listeners. Welcome again to another Fangraphs audio segment. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. I'm joined by roster resource guru Jason Martinez. Jason, what's going on? Oh, nothing much. Just, uh, I guess, no, not nothing much. A lot is going on. This is, <laughs> yeah. this is uh, you got through that regular season. You know, which for me is that's that's chaos. And then I get to, to, to rest a little bit once we get to the off season. But then I realize, I mean, there's all this all this cool playoffs, all these cool playoff series going on, all these great storylines throughout the season. Still not over yet once we get to the playoffs. And then I'm, I'm getting ready for the off season and and starting to move my stuff over from regular season mode to off season mode. And uh it's, it's definitely it, it's it's pretty relaxing. I mean, I don't take a, a lot of time off, and this isn't this isn't time off, but it definitely feels like it's just more. I'm going at my own pace, but then at some point I go, okay, I got 30 of these to do by the end of the World Series, and I start getting getting a little bit less relaxed. But <laughs> you know, we work we work in baseball, man. This is this is a blast. Yeah, how's everything going for you? I mean, what I know it's a, you know transition from regular season to off season. It's a lot different. 
But, I mean, you know, from you being able to, as far as watching games and analyzing prospects and all that, what's what's the big difference from you from end of regular season to October and then how does that progress through the offseason? Well, I'm still, and the industry in general is still adjusting to COVID stuff that is very present, especially when it comes to instructional league and also the restructuring of the minor leagues and what that means for end of season, like postseason developmental time. Uh, that's my cat scratching. It's a uh, scratch board from Target. Essential, essential for the furniture to stay alive. Um, so like at the, we at the very end of the complex league season, the AAA season did not end until October 4th, but most other minor leagues ended like a couple weeks before that, like two Sundays before that. And instructional league, which is like a developmental, it's not even like a league really. It's just, it's glorified scrimmages that occur on the spring training areas. That began like the following Tuesday here in Arizona for some of the teams on the east side of the valley. The Cubs, the A's, the Angels, the Rockies started a little bit later than those other three clubs. But like there was no time between the end of the complex level season here in Arizona and when instructs began. Conversely, in Florida, Florida is a different beast because of how far apart from every, you know, from everything an individual spring training complex is. For, for here in Arizona, the farthest drive I have on any given day to like the Rangers and Royals place is like 45 minutes with not a lot of traffic. But in Florida, like you're driving across the whole state, you're looking at three and a half, four hour drives sometimes. And so the teams in Florida, also COVID's worse in Florida, <laughs> you know, their activity isn't the same as what it is here in, in Arizona. So a lot of the teams are just doing like intra-squads, they're scrimmaging themselves, they're doing like on-field and classroom learning, they're doing stuff in the weight room, they're not really playing games against uh, the kids from other teams like the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Phillies typically play each other a lot during spring training and minor league spring training because they're all kind of clustered up in Tampa and they're not doing that this year. Like the Red Sox and the Twins, who are both in Fort Myers, are just like, nah, we don't want to just play you over and over again for two weeks. So we're just going to do our own thing. And so what that means for like list making, which is what I'm prepping for in the background now, I don't really know. Um, like sourcing in Florida is perhaps going to be even harder than normal this year just because there there wasn't instructional league stuff for my sources to see. Uh for data to be collected from, although maybe that will make it easier. Like, I don't know yet. Like, it might be easier to do the job in a complete way, but we'll have a worse product at the end because, like, there was no instructional league ball to see. It's been very v valuable to watch it in Arizona and just go to the field. Like, there's some days where I'm doing two and three games a day. Uh, I was going to do that today, and then the White Sox moved the time of their game to so that, like, the whole staff and the kids could watch the uh, the playoff game today. And that happened like already tomorrow, the Dodgers and, and the Reds were going to play at 5 p.m. here. And that's like been shifted. So it's pretty amorphous. It's a lot of me like in the car and then trying to have the energy when I get home from the field to like sit down and bang out reports to lay track in front of myself for uh, list publication starting hopefully towards the end of the month. So that's what I'm working on now. I'm interfacing with like, you know, Brendan Golowski and, and Tess and KG and we're talking about, you know, laying track for lists and writing some scouting reports that are already done, probably starting lists with teams that haven't sent anyone really relevant to the Arizona Fall League uh, since there's not going to be like 
an important evaluation uh, during the fall league for that org then. Like, you know, these are the things that we're sorting through now. And I'm sort of like you where I definitely, like I got to stop for a second and breathe. And that came already for me like in September. This is the, this is the time now when uh, stuff is really ramping up for me and will become even more intense next week around this time when Fall League will have started and I've got to like speak at a forum thing here in Arizona. First pitch Arizona, it's like a fantasy baseball conference that I, I speak at annually. Next week is when my my schedule will be pretty ridiculous. And uh, then after that, doing, you know, just Fall League instead of Fall League and Instructs will feel like a breeze. But we're not there yet. You know, and then on top of that, it's like a lot of me bringing my laptop or a tablet to the field to watch a playoff game, to set it, sling it over the seat in front of me at the Fall League ballparks and kind of keep up with that stuff. And uh, I thought I was going to have to do, to do that today, but because of the time changes, I will not. Do you have a, a gut reaction to the wild card stuff? I was over two in my predictions quote-unquote with the wild card <laughs> game it's just a guess you have any thoughts on the two wild card games i think it would have been it would have been really interesting if the dodgers lost <laughs> i think uh yeah you know so i'm kind of glad i'm kind of glad they won just because it's like look you can't be that good and then just you have to play one game and then you're out right i think and i was starting to think like maybe there has there has to be some rule where if if a team wins 106 games or whatever, and and they're a wild card, and they get to play a team that won whatever 90 games or something, maybe maybe the team that won 90 games has to beat them twice. I don't know. I mean, I'm starting to think of those things oh, in my that's head, and I'm like, I don't know. Maybe maybe it shouldn't yeah. be just a one and out, and you know, like so the, I, I, there's a big gap or whatever between their records, and yeah, yeah, to, yeah. There would have to be. I, I mean, some, some cutoff. I was starting to think about stuff like that, yeah. and so just the fact that the Dodgers win, I'm like, all right, that makes sense. Dodgers. Giants is going to be amazing. I think, you know, anytime the Red Sox and Yankees play, I think part of me is just like, I, I really would want to see the, a team like the Mariners get in. I would really want to see, you know, a team that, that, that doesn't get these opportunities. I want to see them get that chance to go in there. But it's also like Red Sox Yankees is right. such a big deal. And it had this, you know, ton of people watched it. And it's just good for the, for the game. And, and so, you know, and, and I really like some of these matchups moving forward as, as well. I mean, the White Sox stacked you know I, I really like the the brewers with with corbin burns and, and and woodruff and peralta i mean that's that's a tough matchup for anybody i think i think i think in my predictions i think i have those two going to the world series but uh as much as is like i, I really want to like just enjoy enjoy the playoffs but then i'm also like eh, i'm a padres fan man and i'm like i would love to just relax and watch the padres in the playoffs but i'm also like Next year, next season, off season. All right, right, let me get to these off season pages. I want to see what my team's going to look like. You know, what what does my team have to do? So there's a little bit bit of focus between you know overlap. There's a little bit of overlap between let's enjoy the the, the postseason. And the good thing is I don't really have to to do much coverage on, on that stuff because I need to focus on the off season stuff. It's just fun. I mean, it's definitely uh, great to to get back to what I was doing two years ago, which is but it's, it's very time consuming as well with the minor league stuff. I don't know if you have any any thought thoughts on this, but like I, what I'm trying to do is is I'm you know I didn't have to do this last year because there was no stats to look at, right? But I'm looking at every minor league player in that organization and in, in, in an organization, and I'm going, okay, is this does this guy deserve to be on this? page like why is this person important so the obvious ones are you know they're on the 40-man roster they're ranked on the fan graphs prospect list they're a high draft pick um, and they're all those and then it's like well these this guy was really good last year and so so going through the first four or five teams has been interesting because there's a lot of these guys that are just they were terrible <laughs> this year 
And I go, well, they're, they're on the list for a reason. And you go back to 2019 and you go, okay, I see why I kept them on this list. They had a decent year and now they were terrible. But, you know, how, how much do I look at that? You know, no, they didn't play last year. And so if they were notable, notable enough two years ago, why should I just remove them now for one bad year? Maybe they're not, they're not like, you know, it's like, it could be like a 22 year old in a high A. So it's like, yeah, still interesting enough. Maybe a Who guy. are the teams that you've been working on to start? So started with the four worst. So Baltimore, Arizona, Texas, Pittsburgh. And then I did the Padres. I jumped ahead with the Padres. Right. So I, so I could <laughs> Give yourself a treat. I, yeah. And then I, and I, and I did a little uh, live stream yesterday using the Padres as the example. So, so I did those five teams so far and I'm working on the Nationals. But yeah, that, so that's been the, the challenge because usually like I go through those, those players and I'm like, ah, he suck. Get him out of here. He suck. Get him out of here. He's not, he's not, I mean, even if they keep him, why would you promote this guy to the next level? Just like not notable right now. And if this player stays in the organization and they, they put up good numbers next year, then I'll re-add them. But any, but, but my point is that I'm not really sure because I'm like, that's, they didn't play last year and now, okay, how much do you think teams are taking that into account like like this guy just wasn't any good this year and of course you got they, they got a lot more information and they got eyes on that that player and they have you know they have a better sense of you know more than just the stats but if, if somebody was just terrible in 2021 how much you know yeah. do they do they give them a pass and go like, well we didn't have a season last year so yeah if you're talking to people with a given org right now and you're doing like a 2021 post-mortem on an individual season and that season did not go well, it is pretty uniform that the teams are pointing to the lack of a 2020 season as a potential explanation for that prospect struggling. But everybody missed the 2020 season, you know, not just the kids who were bad. Mm. So like, you know, I've been on the the Rangers backfield a bunch the last couple of days and there's Bayron Laura. And like Bayron Laura is a big, big money international signee from a couple of years ago. He's 19 now. He was involved in a, you know, we, he missed the 2020 season and also was involved in a car accident in the Dominican Republic that was, you know, physically and emotionally for him, like very difficult to deal with. And he didn't even come stateside for the 2021 season. He just stayed in the DR all year. And like now he's here for instructional league ball. And, like, physically, he looks different for a 19-year-old. Like, he is gigantic. And I've seen he's hit two oppo dingers on back-to-back days here this week. But also, there are parts of him that, like, look kind of scary. And, you know, like, in terms of me evaluating him as a prospect are unfavorable. But also, like, we're talking about a giant teenager who had a really strange year, a really tragic calendar year away from baseball. Like, he is only 19, he has to be put on the 40 man or not like i want to say maybe after next season or maybe maybe 23 uh i forget the specific date of it but like he doesn't project to be ready for that you know sitting here right now and so there are some individuals who because of their case like i do think no 2020 season is very meaningful for them but also like it is just applied uniformly so it's going to be hard I think we'll have another year of me taking a pretty broad, like generous approach to where the guys line up on the lists. There's going to be, we, you know, on the public side for prospect ranking folks, like getting a feel for context will have changed. What it means to be in low A now is different than what it was a couple of years ago because there's no short season league beneath that to sense 
people too fresh and new out of the draft. You know, like you either have to go to the complex or you have to go to full season ball. And, you know, there may be some dynamic, uh, like macro dynamic to the way the talent is distributed through the minors that like impacts the way we look at some of that stuff. You know, if you're a 19 year old who struggled in low A this year, like, that maybe is worse than normal because the level of play at low A seemed to have been down as people just got kind of pushed there rather than hanging back and extended and, and then go into uh, like a short season or advanced rookie league. So it's going to be fascinating. I know like I've been sitting and looking at the D-back stuff too here lately because they were so, you know, they were bad and their farm system is very good. A bunch of their top prospects didn't play a ton this year. I can basically write their reports right now. Like Corbin Carroll hurt his shoulder, had surgery, and that was the end of his season. Like his scouting report for the list could have been written months and months ago because he didn't do anything else. Jordan Lawler, the same thing. And the the D-backs are not doing instruction league, so I can like kind of get them banked. And yeah, like they've got some guys in their system who it's like, okay, Cooper Hummel, who they got from Milwaukee at the trade deadline. So older switch hitting catcher, triple A. Had great numbers, but it's AAA out west here. The old PCL, the numbers are always inflated. After the trade, he kind of was bad. He's going to come to Fall League, and now he's like a big evaluation for me all of a sudden. So, like, you know, these are some of the dynamics that are at play. What is your timeline for having those up? It's just by the end of the World Series, and people tend to use them to, like, prep for their team's offseason, have an understanding of what their team might be doing and what their roster situation looks like top to bottom. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much it's it's a starting point. It's basically you remove all the free agents, you know, you add all of the um the minor leaguers who I didn't have on the page for whatever reason. I go through go through all the stats and I go, Oh, this guy looks interesting. This guy had a good year. And these are you know, I already have every like I mentioned before, everybody who's already ranked, who's on the forty man, you know, every you know, all the upper minors guys who if you make it to triple A, it's not, not really any reason to take them off the page. If they made it that far, they're just, you know, they're pretty pretty close but like the lower minors guys you know i'm missing a lot of there's a lot of guys who i, I haven't who weren't on my radar that might be later draft picks or something i mean especially last year there's a lot of undrafted non-drafted picks from 2020 who are just you know they might have been sixth seventh eighth round draft picks and just you know they, they didn't they didn't have that opportunity and chase walter or whatever yeah there's like there's guys like that and then you know and then unless I hear specifically, I see somebody write about him. And I go, I go, okay, well, I should add this guy. Unless that was the case, I, I don't have him on the page. So I'm just looking at the stats and I go, oh, okay, this guy had a pretty good year. Ton of strikeouts for this guy. That looks interesting. And then I just start adding these guys. And then, you know, because cause it was such a weird year, I'm, a lot of them I'm going to be, you know, it's going to take until 2022 early in the season. And I go, okay, this, you know, and I'll start adding more guys. Or they, if somebody gets invited to Arizona Fall League, and I didn't have him on the page. I'll add him, and that's usually like there's like one guy. Like like for the for the Diamondbacks, for some reason I removed uh, Shumpy Yoshikawa, who's a 26 year old pitcher signed with them back in 2018. I don't think he's been very good. So at some point I took him off the page, and I don't think he pitched very much last year either. So you know I didn't I didn't have him on the page. But then I saw the Diamondbacks invited him to Arizona Fall League, and I go okay, they must. They must like this guy. So I added him back to the page. So I'm kind of looking for, for that kind of stuff just to get these, you know, the minor league stuff. These are the guys you should you should know. And there's probably more than, probably way more than, than and anybody needs to see. But once I get to a certain level, I go, oh, well, if I'm including this guy, I should probably include this group of guys too. And so uh, that's, you know, the minor league stuff. And then the major league stuff is just, it's fun because you start with, it's pretty obvious. And in some cases where it's like, 
you have to throw a guy in a you know position and you're on the roster and and you know if if you just if you're an outsider and you just come in and click on this page you go what that guy's not going to be your starting left fielder and I'm like oh no no kidding man that's why that that that's it's the beginning of the off season so you can look at this and go oh I see what the needs are of this team here or I can go down to the minor league section and go okay who's close who's close you know and and once we start adding. 2022 playing time projections and stats projections, you can look at the minor league guys and go, you know, so, so like if Bobby Witt Jr. isn't on the projected opening day roster, which I'm not, I might put him there, I might not, but you could still go down in the minor league section and find him and go, okay, ETA early 2022. I yeah. see that he's projected for 550 plate appearances. Okay. this is, this is a guy we need to pay attention to because if you just focus on the major league roster, that's just, it's just opening day. And so it's fun. I mean, it's it's fun to, to get to where to just removing everybody like the Padres bullpen. Oh, my God. I mean, they're a mess to end the season. I mean, it went from one of the best bullpens in baseball to just having half of the guys were just unpitched. You just couldn't pitch them at the end of the season. And now you got a, a few free agents. And there's like I got, I put Denelson Lament as the closer. <laughs> sure. which I, I don't even think he's going to be held. I mean, I it's think as good a guess as anything, you know. Yeah, his stuff mean, certainly fits there. He, he can be a closer. He wasn't very effective late in the year. I don't, I don't know if that elbow is going to hold up. I don't know if the, he should even try to keep pitching with 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 that injury. But you know, and I still have Emilio Pagan, and, and there's just and there's like there's nobody else. And, and you go, wow, last year. It was like, wow, where are you going to put all these guys? You got all these really good right. pitchers. They don't have options, and that you know they end up putting a bunch of guys on the IL, um, which cleared cleared up spots. But but that's you know that that's that's the thing I like to look at and I go, okay, it's going to be interesting. You know, not just the Potters for any team to look at it and go, wow, you really suck here. I really want to see how you're going to improve this this part of your roster. And then it gets challenging where teams look teams look like they're set, especially like starting rotation. Is you got five guys there. And then you go out and sign this other guy. You trade for this other guy, and you go, "Oh, where are you going to fit everybody?" And then it gets more more challenging. But you st- you know, it all starts starts to make sense and trying to put put these puzzle pieces back together. Do you have any, as a Padres fan, do you have any thoughts on the way things transpired here the last couple of weeks, and just your reaction to the over, the turnover that's occurred in the front office and on the field? Yeah, I mean, I think any San Diego fan is kind of just like. Uh, here, here we go again. <laughs> you, know, you know, we've never had a championship. One, one of our major sports, the Chargers, in the Padres. You know, the Chargers at at one time were like seemed like the best team in in the NFL, and then they had some crazy stuff happen. Like there was, you know, they had. If you're a football fan, and you remember this this game where Char, I think the Chargers were 14 and two or 15 and one with Drew Brees, best roster. And they get to the playoffs and they intercept a pass at the end of the game and basically against the Patriots. And the Patriots are ready to, to like just become one of the these great dynasties. And the Chargers are like, you know, they intercept the pass at the end of the game. All the guy had to do was just fall on the ground. The game would have been over, but he tried to run it back and he fumbled it. Patriots come back and score and they and they win. I mean, like that stuff like that happens, you know. And I and I bet you, Danny and Tomlinson riding the stationary bike on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. I was going to mention that that too. Like and and Philip Rivers playing, trying to play that game with like a torn ACL or something. And and that's the same thing. And it's like last year, you know, you get you get to the you have this great team and you get to the postseason. Like all of a sudden, you don't have anybody to pitch. Like you traded for Clevenger and you have Lamette dominating the whole season, all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, yeah, they they they're not available. And there's been a few seasons like that with the Padres too. Like the Padres just fell apart in 2010, 
very similar to this one where they were just kind of cruising and then all of a sudden they just tanked, yeah. you know, and then and that's when the Giants came on. And that's when the Giants dynasty started right there in 2010. So as a, as a San Diego fan, you just kind of like, Jesus, this is just, <laughs> this is never going to end. But yeah, it, it's, it's unfortunate um, because, you know, you can't pinpoint, you know, the, the problem, the problems are within the entire, you know, organization with roster construction, with the managing, and, with, and especially with, with, with the players. But you kind of, you know, you kind of had to know, like, if your team tanks that bad, I mean, they went 30 and 50 in the second, you know, the second part of the season, second half of the season, 30 and 50. And it was just ugly, you know. And so you kind of know they had to make a change, even if they really just, you know, they weren't they weren't super reactionary. And everybody's like, fire this guy, fire this guy, trade this guy. I think it, se- it seemed like they just took a step back and said, let's just let's let's take a couple days and figure out what, what's what's the best thing to do. But I mean, there was no way they just couldn't make a change of manager because it, it was it just whether it was his fault or not, whether it was Tingler's fault or not. And I'm sure a lot of people will will blame it on him. But they had they had to make a change because it's harder to, to, to just start overturning this roster. I mean, they pretty much emptied out the farm system. Right. A lot of guys, yeah, say, they don't have a lot of payroll flexibility. So it's just like we got to do something. We signed AJ Preller to a, to an extension, and it sounds like the owner really really believes in him, and I, I don't have a problem with that. And so they just had to make a change. I, I thought I, I was actually hoping for Ron Washington when they when they were before they hired Tingler. So I was like, this is a, a young and upcoming team. It's not a lot of you know not a lot of leaders like Machado's. He's getting he's he's trying to get to that point where he's like. I need to be a leader in this in this in this clubhouse. I don't I don't know if he's that guy or I don't know if he's he's just not that guy yet. They don't really have like they were they were well the Padres are interested in every player in the offseason, right? Every rumor is like, oh, the Padres are also oh, yeah. in and in this trade deadline, oh the Padres are looking at Nelson Cruz. Like, where the hell are you gonna play yeah. Nelson Cruz? But last offseason it was like they're interested in Yadier Molina, they're interested in Adam Wainwright. And I look at those two guys and I go, those are the kind of those old guys who could still play. You need those guys in your locker room, you know, especially with a younger manager. And so, so kind of, kind of saw it was coming. So it'll be interesting to see if they do go in a different direction as far as manager experience. Yeah. You know, my perspective on it is not necessarily the right one, but it is like they made, they couldn't make a trade at the deadline because they traded all of their prospects away over the winter to get Snell and Darvish and, you know, like, they, I think it's like 30-some prospects that they, they've traded away over the, the last little while. And that's an indication that what you're doing from a draft and like player acquisition standpoint is probably working. It's maybe a sign that what you're doing uh, developmentally is working. And yet they, they fired Sam Gini, who you know, was running dev for them on the, on the backfields. They've like moved front office personnel around. Preston Mattingly left to go to Philly. And like the way it reads to people in baseball is that like, AJ Preller's got a handful of people around him who he really, really listens to. And it's like Logan White, uh, David Post, Chris Kemp, and that's it. <laughs> you know, and like it's like an old school scouting type of org. I do think that they kind of, you know, overplayed their hand a little bit, like especially with the Snell trade. Anytime you give somebody up like Luis Patino, who would it have surprised anybody if a year from now Patino is just better than Blake Snell? Like, no. So anytime you do anything like that and you're giving up a bunch of other guys too, I think like, you know, you're in the deep end of the pool with some of that stuff. Um, But also like they did have a couple dozen prospects that other teams really wanted, (laughs) you know, like 
they had they signed Preciado and Owen Casey and Jason Santana and like they're not bad at doing that stuff. It's part of the reason they're in the position that they're in. Um, but I think that the place that what really hurt was Mackenzie Gore not arriving. Like just having Mackenzie Gore even be something like we hoped he would be after his incredible dominant 2019 season would have been very useful. There are other teams who had about as many injuries as the Padres did uh, who were able to deal with them somehow through the kind of depth in the upper minors, uh, pitching depth mostly, that the Padres just didn't quite have. And like then they had to lean on guys like Jake Arrieta and stuff. Like the Rays, to give you an example, had more pitchers injured, but they like spent the offseason finding optionable, like even a bunch of guys who didn't do anything in the big leagues this year, like Stetson Alley and who's the other guy that they signed during a workout who used to be with the Angels. I'm forgetting his name now, but like, you know, like just filler, upper level filler arms. They just sort of had around just in case. And it turns out that they needed him. Padres didn't have those guys around. And like, this is sort of what happened. So, but uh, it is about, I think, sandbagging uh, to prepare for like the storm of injuries that just seems to happen to pitchers every year. I don't know what they're going to do with Eric Hosmer. Hosmer's a big deal in that clubhouse. He's got that kind of charisma that just plays in a locker room. I do think that that's valuable. He's a great defensive first baseman. Is it eight years, $144 million valuable? No. I think they, they had the opportunity to trade him during the offseason, it sounds like. Maybe in, a, in what would have been considered a blockbuster, and they, they didn't pull the trigger because of what the repercussions in the clubhouse would have been. And on their infield, I think, uh, would have been clogged in a way that forced someone to the outfield, although that ended up happening anyway. So, But anyway, yeah, the Padres, it'll be interesting because it's always interesting. And they're the only game in town, and so there's going to be a lot of focus on what happens here the next couple of uh, months. Let's touch on... Uh, 40-man roster stuff before we go. I have had some conversations with folks in baseball over the last couple of weeks about, you know, 40-man roster evaluations. It just sort of comes up naturally this time of year because especially with the offseason in 2020, there are some guys whose roster timelines have come due who we know as an industry not a lot about. So like, Yesterday, I was at the field and saw Ricky Van Asco. Ricky Van Asco with Texas had a dominant 2019 season, kind of came out of nowhere as like a later pick and had video game numbers in 2019. And then we had no 2020 season. And at the end of 2020, he had Tommy John. Uh, and so he didn't have a 2021 season. Yesterday, he made his first post-rehab appearance uh, on the Rangers backfield. It was the only game. It was the only game on the schedule yesterday. There was a rain out uh, that was moved to yesterday. But like there were tons of scouts at the field yesterday to see this guy because he's rule five eligible this offseason. And he was 95-98 with, you know, a lot of violence, but uh, like it's 95-98 that plays in the zone. And a curveball that plays nice off of that type of fastball. There's YouTube video on the Fangraphs page. Folks can go watch it. But anyway, like they're, the people who were there that day are watching to decide, do we put this guy on our 40-man or do we expose him to the Rule 5 draft? And the scouts there are the ones who are like, all right, if this guy's exposed in the Rule 5, do we want him? And that's going to occur during the Arizona Fall League and here at Instructs for the next couple of weeks. Lots and lots of roster evaluations like that. So I wanted to take a, a harken back to a thing that I write typically uh, before the trade deadline which is roster crunch. 
sometimes teams, and typically it happens every year, have too many guys who they're going to retain on their big league roster and are good prospects who need to be added to the 40-man or be exposed to the Rule 5. And they end up with so many of these guys that they have no choice but to make a trade or two leading up to the roster deadline to add them because they don't want to lose guys for nothing via the Rule 5. And so instead, they'll package a bunch of these guys who have to go on a roster now. Typically, they trade them to a bad team who's got plenty of room. Uh, All these guys represent upgrades on their 40-man roster or their active roster. And sometimes they get like a big fish back. So like the Rays. The Rays are a great example. And actually, since I examined what their situation was before the deadline, it's arguably gotten worse. So like in addition to the Rays, who had 50 guys on their 40-man when I wrote the the crunch piece because of injury, well, you put a guy on the 60-day IL, he's not on your 40-man anymore. But when the offseason arrives, he's got to come off the 60-day and be part of your 40-man situation again. So Yeah, I think they're at 51 right now. Wow. (laughs) Okay, so they're at 51 right now. They have maybe 52 because one of the guys, Adam Conley, still on the COVID IL. Yeah, so I think they have 52 on the on the 40. And they've got six. I had six free agents coming off the books: Nelly, Chris Archer, Michael Waka, Tommy Hunter, Colin McHugh, Chaz Rowe. Mike Zanino has a club option, but I feel like they're likely to pick that up. Yeah, most likely. Yeah, so we'll have one, two, three, four, seven guys coming up. Yeah, Cruz, Archer, Waka, Tommy Hunter, McHugh, Chazro, Dave Robertson as well. Okay, and they added him late. So just, you know, season ends, you got to get five guys off that 40-man. So, you, you know, so I think uh, all teams usually have a few of those guys like like the Chris Mazza, the Dietrich ends, and you go, okay, yeah, right. you could probably get those get those guys. Uh, we, don't, we don't really need those guys. We'll try to pick up a similar guy. <laughs> if not the same player, you know, later later in the offseason. Then they have the guys who are prospects who by typically like somewhere close to December 6th either have to be added to the 40-man or they're Rule 5 eligible. And they took care of one of those already by putting Shane Boz on the 40-man. But like Blake Hunt, who came back from San Diego in the uh, Snell deal, he has to be added to the 40-man. Ford Proctor, a converted infielder who sometimes still plays there but now catches – he has to be added. J- Jonathan Aranda, who also maybe they want to convert to catcher, like a stocky Mexican infielder who has a real long track record of offensive performance in the minors, even though he's not super toolsy. He's on the line. Um, Rene Pinto, who has been Rule 5 eligible in the past, another catcher, had a big, big offensive year. Diego Infante, like they just have a long, long list of guys. Tommy Romero. Uh, Michael Mercado, who there was another arm I'm, I'm forgetting now, but like they've got a whole, whole slew of guys who have to get put on. They're already way, way over the 40 limit. So like look for, for Tampa to, to put a deal together where they package a bunch of these guys, send them to somewhere like Baltimore or Philly or wherever the, the, it's thin in exchange for like one big guy or two. Um, I think Cleveland is on this list too. Cleveland's guys have been really, really good during um, instructs here. Brian Lavastida, junior college uh, prospect who has converted to catcher during uh, the last couple of years. He had a big, big offensive season. Tyler Freeman, Brian Rocchio, Joey Cantillo came back from Mike Clevenger from the Padres. He's an interesting fall evaluation. He didn't pitch very much this year. 
came back very late in the season. I saw him was like 87 to 90, which is where, what he was before going down with injury. I It's not like ideal. You want to see the velo really pop there because it's like a carry and fastball. But like still, it strikes. It's upper 80s with carry. It kind of plays in the zone. He's got a plus change up. The curveball is fine. You know, there's utility like first pitch. Look at this loopy curveball. There it is. It's strike one type guy. George Valera, Richard Palacios. Like it's a long, long list. So the, the, the teams to watch for trade activity from are... Cleveland, Tampa Bay for sure. I do, the Yankees cleared out most of their 40-man logjam before the deadline. They traded Ezekiel Duran. They traded Glenn Otto. They traded Jansen Junk. Watch Matt Sauer, Everson Pereira, Randy Vasquez there. Those are the guys who have to be added. I think that they took enough pressure off. Texas will also be an interesting one. They did clear a little bit by like moving Hans Kraus, but Steel Walker, Ricky Van Asco, those guys got to go on. Brock Burks pitching here in Arizona during instructs. I haven't seen him yet. I've just seen his name in the lineup the one time. Bubba Thompson's an interesting one. He had a big year. I don't think he's going to hit. He's someone who I would try to sell high on if I were the Rangers. Yanni Hernandez, they added. Like, they have a bunch of hard-throwing arms who I think deserve consideration. Kelvin Gonzalez. Haver Bueno. Like, his name is Heaver Bueno. He's a pitcher. (laughs) That's pretty good. He's an ASU kid. Uh, Was their Friday night guy for a little while and then got hurt. Cole Uvalo is a 39th rounder. Uh, Like, Anyway, those are the teams I expect to be active. Do you have any other uh, big, big 40-man situations that you're looking at where the team's got, you know, 10 or more guys on right now? No, I mean, I think that's – I mean, the Rangers are going to be, you know, like I said, there's there's always a few guys you can you can, you can can look at and go, okay, yeah, they're going to get out right. They're going to get non-tender or whatever. You know, Rangers are at 46 now. The Rays, are, you know, that's – the Rays and the Yankees are always – they always have a ton of – you know, when I'm doing my, my off – when I'm setting up the off-season pages, those are the two teams – they take forever because there's so many guys in that organization that are like, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting guy. I should add him. And then you add up all these guys, and then you know that roster crunch is coming. You know the Rays are so so good at, at at managing it. But you know there's some other teams that are that are you know at least from the teams that I've that I've worked on so far. Pirates are interesting. Diamondbacks are interesting in that they got some younger guys who who might have to be added. You know Jover Piguero, uh, shortstop for the Pirates. Um, I think he's only shoot. I think he's only going to enter his his age twenty one, age uh, twenty one season high A last year. Um, but yeah, I mean you guys you have him ranked it as sixty seventh overall in baseball. So that's a guy you kind of probably should add. I mean there, it, there hasn't been a you know can you think of of a real five position player who has who has kind of held his own. I mean there's been a, there's there's been several pitchers over the last few years, but. It does happen, right? Like Odubel Herrera has been streaky. Right. Akil Badu. Oh, but yeah, Badu is an obvious one. So I think there will be teams looking. Okay, who's the next Akil Badu? Right. Um, but for a while, it was like, yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to, to to stash one of these guys on your roster because it's like if, if they're they're not quite big league ready. It's like, well, you're going to get blown away by the best pitchers, and it's like that's the kind of guy you don't want on your bench, and you need to. And it's like with the with because the pitching staffs have to be so, you know, because teams are trying to have nine and ten relievers all the time. Right. You only have three or four guys on your bench. They all they all need to be able to to, to do more than just you know they, they have to be able to handle the bat a little bit, play multiple positions. Um, so I think you could find those types of guys in, in the Rule Five draft, but you can't really get a guy and say like this guy's. This guy's not ready. Let's just try to hide him. Like, you can try to hide a, a Rule 5 pitcher and say, well, just put him in long relief. And then, you know, like like the Red Sox took Garrett Whitlock. And at, at the least, it was like, 
okay, well, I think that guy might be a, you know, we'll just put him in, in low leverage situations, long relief. And then you go, it takes, it takes a couple, you know, a month or two and you go, oh, damn, this guy is really good. But, but to start there is a lot easier for, for a pitcher than, than a position player. And it's also the, when you pick someone in the rule five and they get hurt or are hurt, it is not necessarily a bad thing. Like there are ways of keeping someone in your org for the required amount of time give them the minimum number of days on the big league roster to retain them in perpetuity. And then you just have that prospect in your system going forward. So even if they're not necessarily ready, so like the pod, the, the pirates took Jose Soriano from the angels with the first pick in the rule five draft last year, he was coming off a of TJ rehab and spent most of the year doing exactly that. And he's like super duper raw and absolutely not the type of player who typically sticks via rule five pick, but because he was hurt, he's given like a better shot. The pirates get to kind of take over his rehab process and see what they have going on there. Yeah. He had another Tommy John. He had another Tommy. Yeah. He had another TJ. So like injury, the injury piece used to be a way where you'd think like, Oh, uh, you know, Alexander Canario, who the Cubs got from the giants and the Chris Bryant trade last off season before uh, things like play concluded. I think it was in instructs. He separated his shoulder on a play and immediately there was like discussion like, does this make him easier to slip through the rule five draft? He's Mm. kind of raw for how it was another, a lot of Latin American kids you see their timeline for roster addition is coming when they're only 20 or 21 because they're signing when they're 16, 17 and like they meet those, hey, you've been in the org for four years requirement basically. When, by the time they're through 20 and they're not really ready for the big leagues, but they, they're good enough as prospects that they might be at risk in the rule five. And Canario was one of those guys. And I, I really think that it was kind of foolish at the time for all, even just standing on the backfields, like watching it happen for people to go like, you know, does this make him easier to slip <laughs> through? And it's like, no, it really does not actually. It makes it kind of hard. Uh, most of the guys who were picked in the rule five last year, were uh, were injured in some way. Like it made them more rosterable to just, if you just stick them on the IL, like you still control them as a prospect, but they're not taking up space on your active roster. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is much rarer for position players to be picked in the rule five period. And even more so for them to like stick as any kind of impact guy. And it does happen, right? Like Shane Victorino, Dan Ugla, et cetera. Like it happens. But more often, it's like Connor Joe, Richie Martin, V. Mayel Machine, <laughs> Drew Ferguson, like guys who, you know, Carlos Tochi, they can play a role. Like you could see Carlos Tochi being someone's fourth outfielder. You can really go get it in center field and that's sort of it. But more often than not, like those guys end up not doing a whole lot of stuff. Uh, all right. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on what you anticipate, uh, you know, postseason stuff or – do you have a timeline for, I guess you have a hard timeline, right? Like it's the, the end of the playoffs is the time you've got to be done with that stuff. Yeah. So, so I'll just, I'm going to continue going in reverse, reverse order of the standings and until we get to the closer to the world series. So if anybody, so if I get to a certain team and they're still playing, then I just skip that team and put them off. So by the end, I'm like the last two off season pages I'm working on are the, the two world series teams. So end of world series, I'll have officially 30, 30 off season pages by the next day. So you know, baseball baseball geeks out there who don't need a break from from baseball and want to get started on on off season stuff right away. That'll be there. So, 
That's what I'll be working on the next few weeks. Well, let me know if you come across any minor leaguers who you're like, hey, should I care about this guy or not? Because sometimes you will flag a name that I will not have flagged and me running down dope on that guy will turn out to be valuable because it turns out like I should be caring about that guy too. And I do have a couple data loads that might be useful. Like uh, you were talking about Shumpei. Uh, you mentioned him earlier, Shumpei Yoshikawa with the D-backs. Like he doesn't throw very hard. He only sits like 89, 90, but his fastball has gigantic movement. Hmm. And so like, just by you mentioning him, he's a fall eager. Like I, you know, I dug into this anyway, cause I like prepping to see who I should be caring about. Like who's got interesting statistical traits, but like, yeah, let me know if there's anyone who you come across, just slack me and I'll, and I'll dig on some guys and let you know if they're interesting for whatever reason or another. Cause I, I just appreciate people flagging names for me, uh, accidentally. Um, nice. and then, yeah, same for me. Like I'll be laying track on the lists. Uh, folks should look for those at the end of the month. Our prospect list will start to, to roll out for the off season. And, uh, and I think I'll have some fall, I'll have like a fall league page on the board here too. So if people want to follow that. There are precious few games will be broadcast on MLB Network. I think we're only going to get two games. I think you'll get the Fall Stars game and the championship game, and that's it on MLB Network. Like, come on, Network. The Fall League's awesome. You want to promote it, and you should. So, like, there's nothing else going on after the World Series, especially. Like, put more Fall League games on TV, please. And also Winter League games. There was an under-23 tournament taking place i think that that maybe has concluded but like there that stuff is streaming so if folks want to like watch international baseball the u23 tournament the wbse uh put on in mexico is a bunch of in- interesting prospects i've been watching some of that and then uh the, the dominican winter league is also coming folks if you have like an apple tv i've got an apple tv there's a dr sports app and you can pay like 24 bucks and watch Dominican Winter League Baseball. And again, you're going to see a ton of prospects and the culture of baseball down there is so much fun. And you've got your guys like Emilio Bonifacio, uh, Juan Francisco, guys who are pillars of baseball culture in the Dominican Republic who are names from, you know, yesteryear uh, here stateside. Like it's fun to engage with that stuff. So folks should like, you know, do your do your due diligence on on the DR Sports app and however you can stream uh, Dominican Winter League games. Like support that stuff if if you're going to be thirsty for baseball here this this offseason. I know I will be. So, uh, Jason, thanks for hopping on with me this morning, folks. Listening to this on Friday morning. I hope you have a great weekend. Uh, enjoy the playoff baseball for Jason Martinez. I am Eric Long and Hagen. Thanks to Dylan for producing. Take it easy, everybody. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Chelsea Janes for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, or you can always send this producer your feedback on Twitter at dhhiggins. Remember to check out the Fangraphs shop, as well as our free newsletter. We have tons of stuff going on during October, and the newsletter is the best way to hear about all of it. Good luck to the team you are rooting for in the playoffs, and we'll talk to you next week.